and welcome to the family room of The Rock. How's everybody doing today? It's a good Sunday, isn't it? Got a little rain. It's a little cooler out. What a beautiful week. You ever have those days where you've got a real clear thing that you've got to bring, and then as it's as you're as almost upon you, you feel like a, a what do you call it? A, a pin set, and they're all set up, and then the bowling ball smokes them, and it's just everything goes everywhere. That's how my upstairs has been this morning. Um, while Trey's passing them out, I'm just gonna pray for I'm gonna pray for this morning, if that's all right with everybody. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for today. We thank you that you are here with us. You never leave us nor forsake us. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have a clear purpose and a thing that you want to communicate to each of our hearts this morning to encourage us. Lord, I thank you that you sent your spirit to remind us who we are. Just pray that reminder would be clear this morning we could see Jesus clearer than ever. Thank you for each person that's here, each person that may be listening online. Father, we just pray a blessing over this time together in your word. Holy Spirit, we just pray that the words that I speak this morning would not be mine, but they would be yours. You would give each person listening clarity and wisdom to sort out anything that sounds too much like Isaac and not enough like Jesus. They would have the courage and the confidence to do that. We thank you that each of us that are born again have the Spirit of God dwelling on the inside of us. Thank you that you are always and only good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, Before I get started, I'd like to thank Tom for bringing the word last week. If you weren't here, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's online. I think it's online. I guess I'm not certain. That's not my department, which shocks most of you. I don't know if it's online, but I want appreciate Tom. I appreciate the word that he brought, the time and effort that he put in to sharing, um, and I think it was a word that was in season for us. We're actually this morning going to kind of dovetail off of some of the scripture and some of what he shared last week. Uh, over the last year, last six months, this year, 2022, this calendar year, we've been growing and focusing on becoming more Jesus conscious. Everybody remember those verses that we've talked about Several times, we haven't, it's not been every week, but we've talked about growing in Jesus consciousness and shrinking our awareness of ourselves. And so it's not about, well, I'm going to feed the angel and we'll starve the devil on our shoulder, anything like that. It's about growing in our awareness that when, we're, when we read the word of God, we don't tend towards looking for us anymore. Like we talked about the, the I'm just going to re- review a little bit. Remember looking at pictures. If I showed you pictures, if you were participating in Vacation Bible School 2021, and I showed you pictures of that Vacation Bible School, the first person subconsciously you would look for is you, or your family vacation or whatever. If you see a picture, if we see a picture, we look for ourselves. We tend to it. It's just a human nature. It's not, no one is like cursed because of that. There's no sin in that. It's just a natural, we gravitate towards self-awareness. And what we've learned is that we tend to even do that in Scripture. If you listen to teaching sermons, uh, even read back old sermons, so much of Christianity is focused on us. 
And so we're aware of us. Where am I in this story? Where am I in that story? I'm probably Joshua leading the people around the city of Jericho. Or maybe I was, maybe I'm more, and we just, we tend to identify, which is not, I'm not condemning that. I'm just, I believe there's maybe a higher path where we can get to where we're looking back from today, everything in Scripture that we're looking at, especially in the Old Testament, is we're looking back. And even the prophetic stuff, we're still looking back on its authorship, right? It, none of it is written next year. It's, this is simple. But when we look back, we're always looking back through the lens of the cross. And so everything in Scripture has a gospel shape to it. And sometimes it's like, well, I don't know if you can really say. I believe we can because John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. It's being, it's a, that's a descriptive passage giving identity to Jesus as the Word. So we can see Jesus all through Scripture. In fact, I think that's how we're supposed to read Scripture. Growing more and more Jesus-conscious. So that we're not just self-aware, self-centered Christians always looking for a life hack or a self-help, but that we're looking for and looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. As we do that, it will mold us more and more into the image of Jesus. It's the spiritual law of beholding. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14 through 18 reads, But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. But because that veil is taken away in Christ, even to this day when Moses is read, a veil can lie on their hearts. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, thank you, Jesus, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there's freedom. Verse 18, but we all with unveiled faces, the veil's been removed, we're here today, we're in Christ, that veil's been removed, beholding as in a mirror with absolute crystal clarity, the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So as we behold Scripture and we see Jesus in it, we become transformed. It's the spiritual law of beholding. Whatever we look at, we will all, whatever we behold, we will ultimately tend to become like. I think of, and I share this with a couple of you this morning, just a little bit we were talking about this morning and I, I just, I do kind of want to share this because I think we can relate to it. So my daughter is five, and m many of you know her. If you don't, you've been here for almost seven minutes because she's everywhere here. But she uh, loves the movie Frozen. And so now Rhett, my son, by default also loves the movie Frozen. And so what they tend to do, and we don't watch it all the time, but it connected with them. And so what they tend to do is when they look around the world, they see little frozen stuff. So when I see deer eating my newly planted corn, they see Sven the reindeer. And it's, it becomes difficult to go to war with these animals because it's like, they say, it's like oh, it's a whole bunch, it's, it's a bunch of reindeers. It's like, no. No, they're varmints, and they're eating our crops, and they're tarnishing our future, but they see the world through the lens of frozen. So what, they're really acutely or intensely aware of the characters, the plot, and so you, you may relate to this, but when a child becomes fixated with something, they see everything through that lens. 
And everything's like, oh, that's just like Elsa in Frozen. Oh, that's just like when they were going, when we went to the, uh, my in-laws have a cottage on Burt Lake, and we went up there last, uh, last winter, the winter before, and the one mountain we went, or the hill, was all snow-covered, and it's like, oh, that's the North Mountain. It wasn't. It was north of here, and it was a hill. But to, because of their, their acute, intense awareness of that storyline, they see everything through that lens. And as believers today, you know, Jesus talked about childlike faith. Unless we become as a child, we should carry that same level of intensity and awe and awareness of the gospel story so that when we see anything around us, it's like, oh, that's just like Jesus. That's just like Jesus. When we read the word of God, we see it might be a story about Samuel. It might be a story about Gideon. It may be a story about whoever. You fill in the blanks. But when we're the more acutely aware of the gospel that we are, when we read those stories, when we read the scripture, we're like, just like Taya is with a mountain with snow, like, oh, that's the North Mountain. There's Jesus. He's in it. He's through it. He's woven from cover to cover the person of Jesus and the message of the gospel. So this morning, I want to look at an example of that. Now, hear me out. I'm not, this is not an exhaustive teaching on this. There's a half a dozen people in this room that could give you a deeper teaching on this passage this morning. And that's exciting. It's good. We're going to look at an example. I want to give you an example. This is not the only way we see Jesus in this story. But I want to give you an example of what this is and how this works in my life. And again, I'm not telling everybody to have to be like me. I just want to encourage us to grow in looking at Jesus, beholding the Son of God in everything that we read. If you got your Bibles, you want to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to look at the story. This might be a new one to you. The story of David and Goliath, which is a type and a shadow of Jesus our Messiah, our Deliverer, our Savior. Now, I want to share something about types and shadows before we go any further. When we see types and shadows in Scripture, how many of you know that you can tell some stuff about a person by their shadow? Everybody is aware of that. We can tell some things. That looks like it might be fill in the blank. But what a shadow isn't, what a shadow is not, is a complete articulate image. There's likenesses. Understand? So there's things that when we start talking about David and we start seeing Jesus in the story of David and Goliath, you might zoom out and think, well, but David ends up doing this and so that doesn't look like Jesus. Yeah, it's a shadow. This story, we see a shadow, a brief glimpse at the Messiah to come. Does that make sense to everybody? This is not, you can find a lot of areas in David's life that he is not like Jesus. I just want to get that out there so that no one listens online and they're like, heresy, David's not Jesus. I know he's not. But he reveals little bits and pieces of who the Messiah is. So we see, we'll just pick up in verse one. We're going to kind of skip through 17 a little bit because we don't have, we're not going to spend an hour on the whole thing. We got a couple hours on some other stuff later. So starting out in verse one, now the Philistines had gathered their armies together to battle. Now at this point, at this point, does anybody know who the king was of Israel? 
Saul was the king of Israel, and he was commanding the military forces. David had been anointed as king, which means he had been tapped. He had been marked, and he had been tapped to be the king, unbeknownst to King Saul at this point. Saul is the first king of Israel, and he is the reigning king in verse 1 of chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle. They were gathered at Succoth, which belongs to Judah, in a camp between Socha and Azekah, and the etc., etc. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together. They camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. Verse 3, the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other with a valley between them. Verse 4, this is when we get introduced to the excitement. A champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. A little note on this, the name Goliath means splendid, I believe. i got to find it here in my notes. Splendor. The name Goliath means splendor. So he's big. We haven't read the part where he's big, but I just want to point that out. That's his name. A champion went out from the camp of Philistines named Goliath, which means splendor, from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield-bearer went before him. This dude was such a big deal, he didn't go to battle by himself when he went to battle by himself. He had somebody go out before him carrying his armor or his shield. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Verse 11, when Saul and Israel heard the words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 11 is an interesting verse. There's some different uh, versions of it. And there's some of them that convey the picture of quaked with fear. That their, their courage melted. This guy was a big deal. Nine foot, some odd inches tall, huge, thick dude, dragging around more armor than two or three guys could carry and carrying it apparently easily. The picture that is painted of this Goliath, which means splendor, is from the human, natural man's perspective, this dude was undefeatable. Didn't nobody stand a chance against this guy. He was a beast. He was a magnificent warrior, and fearless to boot. Cocky, arrogant. But I want to point out, most of his cockiness and arrogance was rooted in that he was pretty much good for it. Would we agree with that? This was, he was a seasoned warrior. We see that later. He was equipped. He was confident. He had many victories under his belt at this point. He had been a warrior from his youth. Just got to see this guy. We got to get kind of in this story so we can start seeing Jesus. When Saul, verse 11, when Saul and, Israel heard, and all Israel heard the words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. We just talked about that. Their, their legs were quaking, and they're like, oh, what are we going to do? Now David, 
I love that the very next verse, and I know that we added verses and chapters later, but I love that the very next verse, Saul, King Saul, who was also a man of war from his youth, King Saul and all the Israelite army, they were shaking, and the very next thing that the Lord chooses to reveal is now David. Thank you, Jesus. Now David. The dude's unbeatable. He's unsurmountable. He's a beast. He's splendor. He's full of splendor. He's glorious. He's a warrior. Now David. Bring it on. I love the way that the word is woven together. David was the son of that, Epaph- oh, I can't read that, Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, who had eight sons. The man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. Verse 13, the three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of these three sons who went before him were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third was Shema. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. The Philistine drew near and presented himself for 40 days, morning and evening. And Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and ten loaves and run to your brothers at the camp. Carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand and see how your brothers fare. Bring back news of them. Now Saul... And they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper, took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. He came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. Verse 21, for Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. We read that a little bit ago. David left his supplies in the hands of the supply keeper and ran to the army, came and greeted his brothers. Then, as he talked to them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. David heard his taunt. David heard his challenge. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him, and they were dreadfully afraid. A little more description from verse 11. Verse 11, we're just like, maybe they were like the pit of their stomach shook. No, they're flat running. They are scared. There is terror in them at this point. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, Rewind quick. What's going to be done for the man? This is a paraphrase. What's going to be done for the man that kills him? Just so that I know. Kind of do a little, a little accounting. It just, is it worth it? You can kind of see the wheels turning. It's like, I think it would be worth it. I mean, if you could kill him, it would definitely be worth it at this point. That's kind of what he's, and so they repeat. They were rich, great riches, give him his daughter, his father's house tax exemption, uh, etc. He goes on, <clears throat> for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He's got no covenant. We talked about that a little bit last week. The people answered him in this manner saying, so it shall be done. And they answer him again. They say, this is what's going to happen for the man who kills him. Back up to verse, I want to, I want to take time here, back up to this. Uh, verse 25, it says, he will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter. The king's daughter will give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. So he's heard that twice now. Verse 28, now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. 
Is anybody in here, everybody with an older brother, raise your hand. A few of us have older brothers. Now, I have an older brother, and we had a very great, we had a great relationship as kids, but it was a little violent sometimes. And there was this threatening thing between us where it was like, if I could outdo him at something, we weren't going to do that anymore. But he was enough older than me that he controlled the narrative of our activities, and if I bested him at something, we're done with that activity. There's this threateningness that, like, a younger brother comes up, and it's like, he's asking, like, and you have to put yourself in Eliab's position. It's like, you can almost hear him. What is he going to do about it? Why does it matter? To, from his perspective, older brother, also warrior, he had went out to follow. What is David going to do about it anyways? It's kind of like, it doesn't matter what the guy is going to get who kills him because you're not going to do it. And it kind of irritates him because he hadn't been asking. Interestingly enough, we don't see Eliab wandering around saying, so what do I get if I kill him? What do I get if I kill him? No, he's running with the other Israelite warriors. And then his punk little brother comes up and he's like, so what do I get if I off this dude? It's like, just go back to the sheep. What are you doing here? Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. He said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Verse 29, David said, what have I done now? Isn't there a cause? Is there not a reason for me to ask these questions? But then, I love verse 30, David walks in wisdom, which I seldom did as a boy, talking about the older brother thing. David walks in wisdom. He turns away from him. I'm not going to sit here and argue with you about why I'm asking these questions. He turned away from him to another and said the same thing. These people answered him as the first ones did. Verse 31, now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported to him, them to Saul, and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, whoa, the conversation just changed. We read this and we don't think about it. He just went from talking to a few privates in the front lines to talking to the general, the king, the big deal. Let no man, and now David says to the king, shepherd boy, to the king, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took the lamb out of the flock. I went after it, I struck it, delivered the lamb from its mouth, and when it rose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine, this Philistine with no covenant with Almighty God, will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. This is a side note, but I love that David's, you see, David seems quite confident, but who is his confidence in? It wasn't, I'm awesome, I got this. You should see me with a sling, Saul. No, he says, the Lord. I'm confident that the same Lord who delivered me from the lion and delivered me from the bear will deliver me from this dude. So Saul clothed David with his armor, put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk. For he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Verse 40, <clears throat> David took his staff from his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. 
put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch, which he had, and the sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. Verse 41, so the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. At this point, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but I find it interesting. Imagine you're, the, you're Goliath's, the guy out front. Yeah, would you feel a little foolish at this point? There's a boy, probably a teenager, coming towards you to fight this guy. You've carried his shield in big, nasty conflicts. And here comes this boy, and you're like, okay, I guess I'll carry the shield. This is a side note. I just find it entertaining. Put yourself in his shoes. What am I doing out here? Should I keep going? Are we going to fight with this guy, or what do we do? I just, I like getting in the story. So he goes, he's still rolling. Uh, shield went before him, and the Philistine looked about and saw David. He disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? The Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord, I love it, I love David's focus. This day, I will deliver you. No, this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you, take your head from you. And this day, I will give your carcasses to the camp of the, of the camp of the Philistines, to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know. See, there's a purpose to this. The, point, the whole point of the story wasn't the Philistines' defeat so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does, then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with the sword and the spear, for the battle is the Lord's. He will give you into our hands. Verse 48, so it was, when the Philistines arose and came and drew near to, Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, and he slung it, struck the Philistine in his forehead, so that the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, struck the Philistine, and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of his sheath, and killed him, cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now the men of Israel arose and Judah, Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley into the gates of Ekron. The wounded of the Philistines fell along the road, etc., etc. Verse 53, the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their tents. Verse 54, David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Now, where's Jesus in this? Everybody followed the story. It's a great story, isn't it? It's a story of God delivering the children of Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. Delivering the children of Israel through a shepherd boy. From the greatest warrior that we see have evidence that they've ever fought. It's the only one singled out like this in Scripture for us to see. Massive guy. A warrior from his youth. Very confident in his own abilities and in the abilities of the guy that went in front of him holding his shield. I guess they should have made the shield a little taller. Now, 
I want to get us, I want to get our heads in this space. We got a little bit of time yet this morning, and I, which is good because we haven't started the teaching yet. And I want to get us, I, I want to get our heads into this space of looking for Jesus in this. Because it, at first glance, it's like, you know, I don't know, maybe, yeah, David was Jesus and he delivered Israel. But there's some really neat intricacies. For instance, David's name means beloved. Think about that with relationship to Jesus. David was a type and a shadow of Jesus. We'll look at a couple of easy comparisons right on the surface here. So David was not a warrior, and yet he delivered Israel from the greatest oppressor of the Philistine army. Jesus was also not a warrior, and yet he delivered humanity from the greatest oppressor of all times. You see, there's all kinds of these in here. So Jesus was not a warrior. He was not even a religious elite. Now, David used unconventional weapons and armor, right? It's like he tried on all the stuff that was for this, and it's like, that's not going to work. Jesus defeated Satan and the power of sin using unconventional warfare. David was given the opportunity to use the standard of the day armor. To approach Goliath wearing the best armor of the Israelite army. Understand, he was given the king's armor to wear. Put all this stuff on. It's the best of the best. Top of the line, cutting edge. Jesus had the opportunity to engage the works of the devil, the curse of sin, using the standard of the day. You say, what do you mean by that? He could have joined with the religious elites. He could have allied himself with the Philistines or with the, with the Pharisees. Jesus could have become a chief priest, a religious leader. That's the equivalent Gird yourself up in the armor of the day. The way that they dealt with Satan, the, day, the way that they dealt with sin, the way that they dealt with behavior issues in the first century when Jesus walked the earth was through the religious elites, the keeping of Sabbath, the keeping of all the sacrifice stuff. He could have been a Pharisee, but he chose an unconventional path. Jesus had the opportunity to engage the works of the devil and the curse of sin using the standard of the day, joining with the Pharisees, aligning himself with the religious elites. But he chose an unconventional way. He chose to walk with, with unconventional disciples, with fishermen, tax collectors, and eating with sinners and the like. Very unconventional way. Jesus was neither a warrior or a religious elite. They both spent time as outcasts. Jesus was a nobody. He was an illegitimate kid from Nazareth. David was a runt shepherd boy from Bethlehem. Both were anointed as kings as boys. David had been anointed, as we see in 1 Samuel 16, by Samuel, and Jesus by the wise men from the east. Starting to see, there's some things here. It's like, wait a second. This almost looks like we're seeing a shadow or the outline of a savior. Now, both David and Jesus endured resentment and rejection from those they were fixing to deliver. Think about that. Both of them endured resentment and rejection. We see David was like, I'm ready. I'll go. I'll fight with this guy. I'll kill him. I'll, we'll win. 
I'll save you guys. We don't have to tremble in fear anymore. And who resented him? His own brother. They, res- they resented him. They argued with him. Jesus, same deal. Who was he here to save? The very ones who crucified him. They both endured rejection by those they were seeking to deliver. David was resented by his own brother, who was part of the standing army of the day. Jesus was resented by his Jewish brothers, who were part of the standing body of religious elites of the day. Goliath went out using carnal, offensive, and defensive equipment. Okay, Goliath went out, and we see it in the beginning of 1 Samuel 17, how well armed he is. And it's all natural stuff. His attacks, his attack equipment was all natural. He was physically very protected. And we've joked about it a little bit. So much so, he had another guy in front of him for extra protection. But it was all natural. It was all, what I mean by natural is carnal. He had no spiritual protection. It was all physical. David goes against him. He says, I'm not going to win because I'm awesome. You're not going to die because I'm better than you. You're going to die because you have insulted the name of the Lord God, the real God. Spiritual always trumps physical. Satan, the accuser of the brethren, get this church, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, who identifies with Goliath in this story, always accuses on the account of carnal. So Goliath's accusation against David was not based in the spiritual. It was based on physical evidence. He saw, he's a pup. Am I a dog? This is a kid. What am I, what am I, is this a joke? You sent a kid out. Physically, David was absolutely a a youth. We see that very clearly. He was a youth. Spiritually, he was far superior. But physically, he was, there was nothing to him. When the enemy accuses us, it's always on the account of physical. The same kind of accusations Goliath brought to David, the enemy brings to us today. David went out in the name of the Lord. As I said, spiritual always trumps physical. Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, always remind us of a spiritual reality which is greater than carnal facts. What David brought to the valley of Elah was not physical. Understand that. He did not carry a physical victory in his little little pouch of stones. He understood that he had a covenant with Almighty God. Jesus, when he was here, understood his relationship with his Father. And he articulates it to people on many counts. I'm here to do the work of my Father who sent me. He would go off alone and pray. He was very intently aware of his relationship with his father. David was very aware of his covenant with God. A covenant is a form of relationship. Now, 1 Samuel 7, now we're getting to the the good part here. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 9, we see Goliath wanted someone to fight with him to the death. And you see by his apparel, he was envisioning a blow after blow and we're swinging swords and we're stabbing with spears and we're deflecting blows and it's a, he's a physical, it's a physical contest, right? We see that in 1 Samuel 17 verse 9. It says, if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him, in other words, if I continue to fight until I win and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. 
But what do we see about David? David went out to slay him. David wasn't interested in hand-to-hand combat. He never even got, until, until Goliath was on the ground, he was never even close enough to touch him. He went out one purpose. This guy, was, we weren't going to battle it out. We're not going to fight about it. I'm going to kill you. That was all that was on David's mind. I'm going, and I'm going to do it from over here. It was ultimately achieved. Defeat was not the goal, church. It's like, whoa. There's, you know, there's two kinds of military victories. There's defeat and annihilation. Absolutely. He annihilated him, and he did it ultimately, this is where we're going to get into the good part, using Goliath's own sword. I love this. The law of Moses had been fighting with or doing hand-to-hand combat against sin and Satan for 1,500 years. When Jesus arrived, been doing battle, hand-to-hand combat, and had been beaten back at every battle. Because you see, the strength of sin is in the law. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 56 and 57 reads, The sting of sin, the sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Sin becomes strengthened with the law. I want, us to, I want us to just think for a minute. We're looking for Jesus in this story. What did Goliath's sword represent? The law. The strength, the ultimate slaying power that Goliath carried was this massive sword. And it wound up being what took him down. This is good news, church. Jesus did not come to fight with sin. And Jesus did not come to fight with Satan. He came to destroy the works of the enemy. Utterly annihilate the works of the enemy. This isn't, well, Jesus won one round, and then, oh, Satan, say, oh, then Jesus. It's like, it was over and done. Jesus annihilated the works of darkness. Just as David, and he did it using the law against him. Just as David cut off Goliath's head with his own sword, so Jesus used the strength of sin to cut off its head by living a sinless life, becoming the sin offering for all mankind, drawing all of mankind's sin unto himself, becoming the curse of sin by hanging on a tree. Many of you remember, it's been a couple of years ago, Jerry did a teaching about the greatest setup of all time. Anybody remember that? And he talked about how Carefully crafted in the story of the Old Testament in Abraham and Isaac and then the giving of the law was this little window, this tiny little spot missed by most, but it's the opportunity for the Messiah to come. The greatest setup of all time. Jesus, by living a sinless life, Becoming the sin offering of all mankind, drawing all of mankind's sin condition to himself, becoming the curse of sin by hanging on a tree. Jesus effectively used the strength of sin to take off 
its head. As 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, the sting of death is sin, but the strength of sin is the law. Romans chapter 8, we're going to read a bunch of scripture here. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11 reads, Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. The law is weak through the flesh. I want to, we're going to stick a pin right there. If I had a real one, I'd mark it because I might, remind me. The strength of sin is the law. The sting of the law is our flesh. What the law could not do, it was weak through the flesh. It was weak through our flesh. The instructions were fine. The instructions that were given were fine, but we add weakness to it because it's our job to walk them out, and we can't ever walk them out. What the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did. Thank you, Jesus. What the law could not do because it was weak in my flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. The likeness. He, I love this I love the pictures that are in Romans chapter 8. Thank you, Tom, for willing me this chapter. On account of sin, what God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Verse 5 goes on and says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is at enmity with God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. If Christ Jesus is in you, then the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. That is good news. If you rewind to verse 4, it says the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. How many of you know that on our own we'll never fulfill the righteous requirement of the law? We've, I know we're kind of harping on this, but it's important that we understand this. The righteous requirement, there was a right, it was a legal right requirement that had to be fulfilled. And Jesus did it. And that's what, that's kind of, does everybody follow me how the, strength of sin is the law representing this sword that ultimately David took Goliath's head off with. Jesus ends up using the law to win our right standing with God. A lot of Christianity today, there's a lot of groups of Christianity today that are like, ah, the law, the law, who cares about the law? The law is what was used to make us righteous. We just aren't using it. That's good news. If my message today to you was, here's the law, everyone try and keep it to maintain your right standing with God, we would leave here maybe excited for the next 20 minutes. By tomorrow, you would be dejected. By Wednesday, you would never come back. 
We can't keep it. We can't use the righteous requirement of the law in our own lives as us. So Jesus does it. He uses the legal rights given to him by achieving the law, and he gives it back to us. He accounts it to us. He puts it to our account. Condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. When David was done, Goliath's head was on its way to Jerusalem, apart from his body. When the Lord Jesus ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father, the powers of darkness were defeated. Their head was on its way to Jerusalem. Just like Goliath's. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, it reads, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. But he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy, and I would add utterly in our English translation, utterly destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. I love the picture that John wrote there, that the purpose, Jesus came not to win, not to defeat, not to, and I shared this earlier, do battle against, but to utterly destroy the works of the devil. That's good news. That is good news. we got a couple more things we're going to look at here. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 6 through 15. Paul's letter to the Colossians in the second chapter, verse 6, picks up, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. In him you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through the faith and the working of God, who raised him from the dead." And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. What a good word, church. He disarmed principalities and powers, made a public spectacle of them, and triumphed over them in it. He fulfilled all of the law, all of the stuff that was standing against us being right with God, everything that was lined up, all of the things, and get this today, church, all of the things that the enemy will tie to his little darts and arrows and throw into your life, all of the accusations that he can bring, he's disarmed them. He used them against him. 
He fulfilled it. He lived righteous and then gave that righteousness to us. He fulfilled legally everything. There's no outstanding, it's not like, well, this case is pending. We'll see how they do. You know, church, we're not out on probation. You understand that? It's not like we're going to give them a year. We'll see how they do. If you give us a year, we'll let you down. We're not out on probation. We're legally, case closed. The, mall, the hammer came down. It's done. The righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. When Goliath, and this is, we're going to tra- track back to David. When Goliath's head came off, so get back down to the valley of Elah. There's a little stream. He picks up the stones and he goes out and, and there's this you know, kind of word play between the two of them. Goliath's pretty upset that they send David out. And David clearly lays down what he believes. Sends the stone, Goliath falls. But you know, at that moment, no one moved. If you're watching this in your mind right now, nobody moves. In fact, I gotta believe that at that moment, everybody held their breath. Because if you picture Goliath as a bear, I've heard of people that have shot bears and you want to make darn sure and certain that you drop them with the first round. Because you probably aren't going to get a second shot. And in this moment, if that bear comes back up, if Goliath stands back up, I want to point out, church, David's toast. If that giant stands back, because we don't know, we're watching from a distance. He went down, but maybe he just tripped. Maybe he, I mean, it looks like a, maybe he's just unconscious. Lord, wait till he wakes up. That little boy's gonna be running and everybody's holding their breath. And then David walks up, calm, cool, and collected. I gotta imagine, this is just my imagination I'm adding to this, so just this not in scripture. Don't you think he maybe struggled a little bit with the sword? He was a little whipper, and it's like, he struggled with the sword, but by golly, that sword did its job. The interesting thing about a heavy sword is all you gotta have is gravity on your side. <laughs> he draws this sword and is soon, you see it in The moment his head rolled off, the Philistines fled. They understood he's not getting back up. Church, as believers today, he's not getting back up. He's not getting back up. This isn't, we're not gonna fight it all over again. It's not, we don't, we can breathe. We don't have to hold our breath on the sidelines like, what if he gets back up? He's not getting back up. And in that moment, this is what's, uh, what I love about this passage in Colossians, he made a public spectacle. He made an ordeal out of them. Understand, in the natural, Jesus was made a spectacle of. But on Thursday night, Friday, Jesus was made an absolute spectacle of. He was beaten beyond belief. All dignity was gone from him in the natural. But I tell you, church, the spectacle that he made of the powers of darkness on Friday night and Saturday make whatever he endured pale in comparison. Jesus made a spectacle of them, triumphing over them. I love this truth, church, that when when the enemy's head came off, the enemy's forces fled. When the Philistines' head came off, they ran. They knew it was over. 
And I want to encourage us today, we've, we've looked at this story for a few minutes in some detail. And I told you when I started, this isn't exhaustive. This isn't all there is in this story. There's a ton of other times we can see Jesus in the story of David. I encourage you to go find them. Go find them and let the Holy Spirit draw them out in the New Testament. Just as we saw this morning, there's passages in Romans, there's passages in Colossians, there's passages in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that bear witness, that tie back to this story. And as we do that, we become stronger and stronger in seeing Jesus. The thing I want to leave us with on this story, I got to get back to the point here. Uh, Just give me a moment here. Okay. Verse 51 of 1 Samuel 17. This is my last point. So everybody, if you got lunch plans, you can start shifting in a moment to thinking about them. Verse 51, then David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him and cut off his head. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. We just talked about that. Now verse 52 This is for us today, church. Is everybody ready to give a shout? Verse 52, now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted. They pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley. They arose and shouted. Jesus took down Goliath. My challenge for us today isn't to try to be more like David. There's a lot of great preachers have preached great messages on that, and I'm not trying to take away from that. Our call today, what I see, what we saw through this story, is we're the men of Israel and Judah in 52. We were trembling in fear. At the beginning of the story, when Goliath came out and did the whole, ah, and it's like, we're running. But then David comes, offs his head, and we stand up and roar. And we stand up and shout and we walk, as Proverbs 28.1 says, as bold as a lion. Worship team, you want to go ahead and come forward? As we go out today, I want us to go out and remember verse 52. The men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted because the Philistines' champion was dead. They had made... They had made so much of Goliath. The Israelites had made so much of Goliath. The Philistines had made so much of Goliath. And sometimes today, church, I see Christianity making so much of Goliath. So much of the enemy. The enemy is big and all present and everywhere. And the enemy has been defeated. The enemy has been defeated. Let us make much of Jesus. When we look back and we read the story of David and Goliath, let us make much of Jesus, our Savior, our Deliverer. If you would join with me and stand, I'd like to make a declaration over us, and the worship team is going to lead us in another song. At the rock this morning, we choose. It is a choice. We choose to be spiritually minded, to regard each other according to what is spiritually true. We choose thanksgiving as a way of life. We anchor our natural hearts to be made strong in the joy of the Lord. This morning as we go from this place, we declare that the promises of God in Christ Jesus, they are yes and they are amen to the glory of God. 
And as such, we declare with the old covenant saints that we are blessed in the city. We're blessed in the country. When we rise up, we're blessed. And when we lie down, we are blessed. We understand that here today, the earth, this natural life, isn't all fixed yet. But we know that the pressure on the inside is greater than the pressure on the outside. And as John wrote, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving us eyes to see and ears to hear the voice of our King Jesus all through his word. This morning, we declare a blessing over our homes and over our children that we may continue to raise them up in the word of God, knowing the very God of the word. We declare that this week will be one of opportunity, that we as children of God, we will have both have opportunities and choose to take them to bear witness to your goodness revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ and through his spirit. Amen. Let's sing. Amen.